You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Today is uh, August 4th, 2021, and I'm here with my good colleague, Dr. Kristen Collins, and we're going to have a conversation about democratic theory and uh, the contemporary uh, sort of world uh, of democratic society. So Kristen, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have so many interesting questions that I want to ask you about you uh, because you're from New Jersey and I'm from New Jersey and we know that that's the pinnacle of civilization, but we'll leave that for, for our dinner conversations. Um, So I wanted to, to start by asking you about the intersection of your work between intellectual history and democratic theory and whether or not you could tell us a little bit about how, how someone from international relations at Tufts, ends up by going to Georgetown and working at this intersection and, you know, go ahead, you know, so, yeah. Thanks, Pete. Yeah. Um, I, as you said, I, I got to do international relations at Tufts. And one of the great things about that program is it's very interdisciplinary. So I got to have a little taste of everything. So I had econ, international econ, international relations, political science classes, history classes, And one of the core requirements I could do by studying Western political thought, and I was just totally hooked with that class. So that really changed, I think, the trajectory for me. Um, And that's what influenced me to want to go to grad school was if I could study political theory, which you really, it's kind of hard to do without having a PhD. So uh, it was a very major decision. But what was great is that I had that interdisciplinary background. So going off to Georgetown's government department, I felt pretty capable, uh, as as capable as one can feel starting a PhD program, to be in a department that had social science, that had people doing more quantitative work and empirical study, because I was interested in that. And while I was interested in the history of political thought, I wanted to think about how these historical texts could speak to contemporary problems we are facing today. And conversely, how the way that we're looking at our world now can make us see things that we maybe weren't noticing as much before in these texts. Um, I think, you know, I've talked a little bit about before about Hans George Gadamer and sort of Gadamerian approach. And that's, uh, you know, very influential for me. So, working with Richard Boyd and Joshua Chernus, Bruce Douglas at Georgetown, I felt very encouraged to blend really rigorous readings of these historical texts with the advantages of contemporary social science in terms of developing my own arguments for thinking about contemporary democratic politics. That's awesome. I mean, I, it's so fascinating for me, this intersection between what we use intellectual history for. Um, so in, you know, our colleague Tyler Cowan recently did a conversations with Tyler with the historian Nal Ferguson. And he was asking Ferguson to compare and contrast his view with Quentin Skinner, you know, uh, over, over these kind of things. And it was a point of tension uh, that was in there. Um, but I've always loved Skinner and Pocock but I'm sure that I get them wrong, just like I do Willard Quine or anyone else, because you know I, I, we we had a seminar here many years ago and we were having a conversation about Willard Quine, and 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 I was in this as essay two dogmas of empiricism, and I was really focusing on the first part and sort of arguing that he defends the kind of position that I hold, and then Virgil says I don't think you read the second part. <laughs> yeah, I ignored that part, but anyway, it's it's. I'm fascinated by this idea of, of whether or not, like, do you feel guilty about recruiting the past or do you understand the past? Do you think about those kind of issues? About I, yeah. I, I think about that all the time. And that's a great question. And it, I feel like it really is at the heart and the tension of being a political theorist. And 
you know, I, I still kind of second guess um, at any time I'm working. I And I try to, what I love about thinking about Gadamer's approach uh, is to think about a conversation with a text and the idea that the text, just like a person is going to push back against you. And you need to be really careful that you're not projecting onto uh, you know, that text or that person, what you think they're saying and really try to listen, even while at the same time, recognizing that no matter what, it's always going to be an intersubjective interaction. You can't erase yourself, uh, and the influences that you have that are shaping how you're reading something. So to me, the best I can do, or what I, what I strive to do is when I'm working with historical work is to carefully pay attention to historical context and also try to be clearer about when I'm I'm making my own argument, um, the sort of influenced by this text, but to make a new argument point. Uh, and at the same time, I think every every different piece of work that you're doing kind of calls for a different dimensions of that approach. So you might work on something that ha- demands a much more rich historical approach and be clear about that. Uh, even though I think you might, I, when I do do that, I kind of often think about, okay, well, in the future, after I publish this piece, I might publish something that's more my own original argument. And I will have had this kind of working through of these ideas much more true to this original text um, that will help me do that in the future. Yeah, it's, um, it's I mean, it comes through in your work, um, the carefulness and the, in, in, the curiosity that you bring to these texts. So it's just great. So let, we'll move on to the next set of questions, which have to do with your work in democratic society in general. I want to point out something. You probably don't realize how important you were to me during the whole pandemic shutdown, because I was working on a, a book that I was trying to frame. There are a series of lectures, but try to frame in reference to the idea of what is the cosmopolitan liberal project today and the role that democracy plays in that. And so as a result, I was reading democratic theory and I would every once in a while check with you about what you you thought that was like, you were my checkpoint because all I ever had was not the conversation. I had the conversation with text, but not the normal kind of social Mm. learning. So I really appreciate that. And I hope it reflects a little bit in the way that I said things there, but I'm, I expect to learn a lot more. But one of the things that I became attuned to by reading you and also, you know, checking things with you was this notion of being seen and and the importance of that. So not only the 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 scene that I see people, right, but also you yourself feel seen and feel heard and, and these kind of things. This is a major theme in your work of the of being seen. And and so could you unpack that a little bit and related a little bit to both the Enlightenment thinkers and the thinkers that are critical of the Enlightenment project, all of whom are part of your conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, and I, you know, I love, I always loved your emails and it's definitely a tough time this pandemic, but I think all of us are so thankful for those conversations that we could have. Um, and, and, And it does make us appreciate the time we do have to when we eventually get get back in person and really get back to these great conversations. So for me, being seen and as you know, as you said, it's sort of seeing it and being seen. Um, but it became very pertinent to me because of contemporary democratic theory discussions of this concept of audience democracy. And really what is pertinent there is this idea that our democratic politics should be understood as heavily influenced by the media, mass media and social media, and the kind of parasocial relationships that politicians can develop with voters that maybe to some extent mediate politics in a stronger way than maybe party politics does today, the kind of party machine that we typically think about, right? But What's unique for me is that you also can think about being seen uh, in very colloquial terms. I mean, people say that, you know, when you you feel seen and sometimes it's when you're watching a TV show and you really relate to the character and you say, I feel seen, you know, by this show. And so you really get at this dialogical process here of seeing and being seen. But the other side of it is that there's a long tradition of thinking about the downsides of being seen, of being seen. Uh, in in the in an unsympathetic light or being see, being 
not not seen well, if that makes sense, or, or not feeling seen, uh, but still being observed. And so typically we would use the term surveillance for that kind of thing. Yeah. So to start off with, I think what's interesting is that there's a sense today on the one hand that we have this very unique contemporary politics where visual experience, media, television, the internet are all central to how we conceive of politics, that we have these parasocial relationships. We almost feel like we know these politicians just by following them on Instagram or something like that. Um, and people are actually kind of worried about that. I think there is some sense that there's this anxiety of it's too emotional. It's too, uh, it, it provokes passions in us. It makes us irrational. Whereas reading, and this is, a, you might be familiar with Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. That was a very popular book in the 80s and still popular today that I think people kind of reach for where he had this argument that in the past reading was so much more central and reading kind of makes you use your reason in a very specific way that watching doesn't. And I think that that's a kind of general take that people have. Um, and people can especially talk about that with the Enlightenment as the age of reason and the liberal tradition coming out of that, that there's these, these opposite, opposites that we have between the passions, the visual and reason. And so on the one hand, I wanna kind of challenge that and say, well, maybe there are more resources in this tradition that are less antagonistic to emotions as we thought and less antagonistic to visual spectatorship. The idea that when we're watching something, we're not just imitating it. We're not at risk to just be a mirror of that. And when you see somebody very impassioned and maybe even angry, uh, on TV, you're not necessarily going to just take that out right away. Uh, you're going to be thinking about it reflectively too, uh, and you're going to react to it in different ways. So that's the one hand. And on the other hand, there is a long tradition of reacting to the liberal tradition or to the Enlightenment project more broadly that sees it as a form of governance, a governance, sorry, a form of governance that relies on observation. So the seeing part is less important and the being seen is really important. And so liberals are able to kind of reject this more punitive approach in terms of spectacular punishments from the, the pre-modern era uh, and instead kind of create institutions so that people are being absorb, uh, observed and therefore they are induced to conform and therefore they are more socially pliable and, and able to cooperate with each other. Um, but that maybe there's sort of a, a dark side to that, a, a problem with that and that it might be uh, violating in some way. And it's pernicious because people don't realize it is because it's less violent in the traditional sense, correct? So the interesting thing about that is that in returning to these thinkers, we can, we can see that they're much less sanguine than we often treat them about this form of observation about publicity. Uh, and so negotiating on what terms are being seen by the public uh, an empowering position uh, in which you're influencing what people are thinking and what they're saying and doing. And in what terms is it something that's disempowering, that's disciplinary, uh, and also negotiating what do these thinkers uh, suggest about these and to what extent do they actually illuminate the dangers uh, and the promises of these phenomena for politics in ways that we maybe didn't appreciate before. Yeah, I, I mean, just listening to you to put it in context for, you know, mm -hmm. people that might be listening in that are more myopically economics. I mean, this is, you know, you have Bentham mm -hmm. and the Panopticon, mm -hmm. and that's actually all about observation and social control. And then you have Adam Smith, which is trying to elicit our sympathy by, you know, basically either you know, it's it's one of the things that we talked about was the Sam Fleischacker book, you know, about whether or not you're projecting yourself or whether or not it's proximity or whatever. But leave that aside right now. But Smith's notion of the the sympathetic, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, observer right in the in the in the press. And you've written about both of these different thinkers in this relationship. And it is amazing when you think about it, that they were raising aspects of the conversation that we're still wrestling with, right? Think about even just now, I was listening earlier this morning, in many ways, you know, when Biden gets up, you know, he's basically, you know, telling the people who haven't yet got the vaccine, 
you know, I'm, I'm seeing you and, and, you know, you're not, you know, this is like the, the panopticon in some sense, right. Mm-hmm. Or the Blasio more explicit, which is, you know, he made it very explicit. If you have the vaccine uh, passport, you get to enjoy New York city. If you don't, we don't want you here. You're not going to get to enjoy New York city. This is all related to, you know, what, you know, surveillance issues that you've talked about. So, you know, can, can you maybe like just talk a little bit about your paper on Adam Smith and then also your more recent paper on Bentham just to, you know, where you see the contrast and the and the points of intersection here? Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's a great question. And thank you. I know I kind of uh, didn't get into the details of these thinkers, but this is a great opportunity to do so. So, for example, with Smith, as you as you've said, he has this very important concept of the impartial spectator. And that's really relevant to his moral philosophy. And so on some level, it's a descriptive account, right? Um, What he's arguing is that the way that we form our moral judgments is by observing other people, by observing how people react to other people and how they judge them, and also by knowing and seeing that we're being judged by those people as well. So how can we ensure that we're being judged well, that we get praise instead of blame? Um, that were attended to with sympathy. So the impartial spectator is this kind of model of a conscience that we form so that we can get predict and anticipate and also understand how people might judge us. Um, but that that impartiality really is it's, it's it, that's that's a whole thing unto itself that we can discuss. But uh, in my work, what I wanted to show is that contrary to a lot of people who think that Smith's descriptive account, means that he's very, let's say, again, sanguine or, you know, very happy with this process that he thinks that there's, it's not problematic. This is totally fine. He actually expresses a lot of concerns about the ways in which people can judge people too harshly, the kind of common mistakes that we make as a society when we're observing and judging people. And I think the important thing to note is for all these thinkers and what's relevant to this question is that we desire to be seen and we desire to be seen with sympathy and ideally with praise and ideally well and, and admired and all those good things. And that's just a part of being a human being. And we're not going to ever get rid of that. But the, the, the flip side of that is that we can suffer greatly when that process doesn't go our way, way or doesn't go, doesn't go well, doesn't go justly. So the major crux of my discussion of Smith in my article in the American Journal of Political Science is on his discussions of people living in poverty, particularly, uh, as an example of his discussions of when people judge too harshly or are making mistaken judgments. Because one of Smith's comments on how we have moral corruption in society is the fact that People tend to see that the wealthy are very well admired and disproportionately trusted, even when they do morally bad things. Uh, Whereas we see that people living in poverty, regardless of their innocence, are seen with disdain and are held in contempt. And that leads us to really showcase our wealth when we're doing well. And it also leads us to want to conceal when we're not doing well. And so there's this tension between a impetus for concealment in the face of the limits of sympathy and the fact that it is only through exposure that you might be able to get assistance in the first place. And so I really explore that tension. And I suggest that, you know, some people might go and say, well, Smith just, he doesn't really care that these processes can go so badly because as long as you believe in yourself and you know that you're a good person, you can always rely on that as uh, the sort of consolation for the fact that people might be judging you too harshly. But I, I suggest that he is actually deeply concerned because he shows that people with very strong and partial spectators, people who are really concerned with what other people think of them, uh, it's going to be even more difficult when they get judged so harshly. So I do go beyond Smith, and that's what we were talking about earlier, to use this kind of moral framework to talk about the democratic consequences or the consequences for democracy of the experiences of people living in poverty who make claims for public assistance and how these programs in America are usually 
very much dependent on pretty rigorous surveillance measures, uh, which is to say rigorous questioning about intimate life details and things like that and showing why, you know, when society decides to put these uh, surveillance mechanisms in place, they're apt to exacerbate the distress of people who are are trying to get help in the first place. There's a, an older book that by Gertrude Himmelfarb mm-hmm. um, that also addresses this issue in a weird way historically, right? Because when you move away from things like the private charities, which monitored very closely and tried to make a distinction between the, the un, unworthy poor and the worthy poor and those kind of things, which, you know, um, uh, when you try to get rid of that, then there's a problem having to do with the overexploitation of the resources and not being able to do anything. But on the other hand, some of those measures about putting people in those different buckets are pretty obnoxious and, and oppressive in their own light, right? And so it's kind of fascinating to think about Smith in the way that you put him. I guess that the question I would have for you relates to your Bentham piece, because to me, Smith is in a different project than Bentham, um, which is that Smith is trying to understand social psychology and it's in, in the sort of the human condition based on our psychology, whereas Bentham is trying to, based on our psychology, institute control, social control. Mm-hmm. But, you know, before I, I get there, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Smith, because I think that, that, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we don't appreciate TMS as much as we probably should, um, uh, or don't read it, or we think we've read it. It's become a coffee table book. We think we read it. We don't really read it. Um, but do you see um, much of a disjoint between the project and the wealth of nations and TMS, or do you see that the TMS provides the sort of behavioral foundations for then what's taking place in the wealth of nations? I mean, how do you see that discussion? Yeah, that's a great question. And personally, for me, I do tend to think of it as providing the behavioral foundation. I think it's really crucial. I don't really, yeah, I don't really see the, you know, problems of disjuncture as much as it's, it's been cast in the past. Um, and I think part of that is that it could be difficult if you only read Wealth of Nations and then read Theory of Moral Sentiments, right. but the more that you read them together, the more you see how they piece together. And one, one example of that is that, it, I'm, I know you know this quote, the, the butcher, the baker. Um, so that quote about how we appeal to people's interests rather than their benevolence when we trade with them. What I think is so interesting about that is I almost don't think it really makes that much sense unless you think about it in terms of the, the way that he casts our interactions in theory of moral sentiments, because how can you have any sense of somebody's interest if you don't have the ability to have some sympathy to yeah. what it's like to be them in their position. So that again, sympathy doesn't necessarily, it's not just compassion. It's not just about eliciting benevolence, but it's actually really being able to anticipate what other people are thinking uh, in the social interaction that you're having and figuring out what your appropriate offer would be to them. Yeah. And so I think, you know, he's really like a lot of other thinkers thinking about the sort of impossibility of really truly knowing each other because we are so external to one another and the mechanisms or the, the habits that we have for figuring out um, both psychologically and sociologically, sociologically, uh, how we can connect and, and really cooperate or just, you know, interact peacefully with one another. I bet you that uh, you've probably had this conversation with Virgil, but, you know, earlier you were talking about Gadamer and, and his, you know, theory of interpretive philosophy and, you know, basically how you wrestle with text. Mm-hmm. And you said that you're having a conversation with the text. And just like when having a conversation with people, you should expect the test te- text to push back. Well, the radical part of what Lavoy, Don Lavoy was trying to do with the Gadamer stuff was to take the methods of learning how to interpret text and apply it to the way that we interpret one another's behavior so that the text is now the human interactions, right? And in some sense, given the reading that you just had of Smith, that's actually what Smith is doing as well, right? It, it's uh, and and in many ways, you know, this is a phrase that that 
might get uh, bounced around, but people don't understand what it means if they're trained in standard economics, which I'm going to come back to in a a few (laughs) minutes. But Doug North, after during the collapse of communism, um, used to argue that economists got it wrong by just saying, get the incentives right. And so one of the things he said was, you, you can't just say, get the incentives right until you tell me what people mean by what they consider to be in their interests and everything like that. And it's that second question, which is what Lavoie was trying to get at 20 years before, you know, uh, or a decade before North even mentioned that. That's why Don turned to Gadamer. It was the, the reading of text is reading of the, under, so what is a price? What's the meaning of a price? right? It's not just a posted price and therefore you know it. You have to understand it. You have to sort of appreciate it, understand its context. What's it telling me about those things? And I, and I see that in the way that you lay out this whole discussion of Smith, because you have appro- uh, uh, approbation, but also disapprobation, right? You have the ability to have very tight sympathy and then very extended you know, limits to that sympathy as well. And so anyway, it's, um, and at the end of the day, Smith is trying to make us think about natural equals. So that's the whole porter and the, the, the street porter and the philosopher, which, and so one of his main targets of ridicule is the arrogant person who thinks he's beyond others, right? So he's, you, you have to see yourself in these others. Now talk about Bentham. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I was just thinking, I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't. Every time you ask one of these questions, I'm I'm getting there further and further. So we're, we'll get, yeah. finally get to the Bentham part. Yeah, you know, what's so fascinating about working on someone like Jeremy Bentham is we have this very, I mean, not to, not to, go, not to go in another direction with Frederick Nietzsche, but yeah. Nietzsche has this great quote about, you know, the mask that grows around profundity. And that is to say that the way that we think of Bentham today is very much filtered through the lens of Michel Foucault's reading of the Panopticon prison in Discipline and Punish. And I actually find that very uh, provocative and a very important text and what, what Foucault's arguing. And if Foucault is himself a complex figure and, and understanding what he's doing with Bentham is a project unto itself, right? But we do have to acknowledge that 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 is in our minds. And when I started out my project, I had a very kind of specific image of Bentham in my head that was not entirely Foucault's, but also influenced by other Bentham scholars who kind of push back a little bit on Foucault, but who still kind of acknowledge what Foucault gets right. Um, And so one example of that is, like you said, with uh, Himmelfarb's book, you know, she's quite critical of Bentham. And other people are quite uh, critical of Bentham. Um, Charles Baumuller, for instance, has a book on Bentham's poor law reforms. And those are where he uses the panopticon to reform uh, the workhouses for the poor and for um, you know, having the poor work for uh, their aid, right, for public assistance. Uh, and those projects are, are awfully uh, sanguine, I would say there about surveillance and about using surveillance as a form of social control. Um, but at the same time, what is a, a growing tension in Bentham scholarship is that Bentham in his later works uh, was much more democratic. And he was very, he's very insistent about the importance of public opinion and using the public as a check on people in power. So the Panopticon goes from being a model for a prison to something that influences the way he designs the the writings in the constitutional code and the way that he imagines designing government buildings so that you can have the people, you know, literally observing the politicians and kind of functioning as this, using surveillance as a democratic power. So those are these already complex tensions. And then what was so... Strange when you work in a history of political thought is you go to the archive and you uh, you've read some secondary literature and you find something like this institution that he designed called the Sodomion, which was a hospital or asylum for unmarried pregnant women to be able to conceal their births. And that is a very on its face. It's hard to know how to read that. Right. You could easily imagine that this institution would be on the side of uh, of using surveillance to control women. And yet when you you read into it, it's not 
really designed as a panopticon. In fact, the women have their own cabins, which was very distinct from other charitable institutions that served women at the time. And there was also the sort of reversal of the prisoner of, of the, the prison where there's a central inspection tower and there's a prison guard able to watch all the prisoners at once. And the prisoners never know when they're being watched because the guard is behind curtains or blinds. So you can't see. So it, that's this notion of this permanent visibility that is so controlling. Uh, and instead of having something like that, he has what is called what he calls an examination room where the residents, the pregnant residents can see any visitors who come in they get to be sent a you know envelope that says the person's name. They can verify whether it's the person that they say they are, and they can say whether or not they want to see that person or they want that person to see them. And that's that's very much a, a I would say a reversal of the panopticon on some level. It is a little difficult because that 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 government constitution example too. That's a little bit of a reversal. Anyway, the point is. It's radically changed how I was thinking about Bentham. And, yeah. and once you see that, you can't unsee that. You right. have to really, and, and that's what I was saying earlier, that when you have that kind of project, I felt compelled personally. You, could, you can approach it methodologically from different angles. But I felt that it was important to understand the historical context, to look at Bentham's other writings on women, on sexuality, to make sense of how did he conceive of this project? Was he trying to use it as a mechanism for social control? Uh, and I found that he, it seems that it was more a solution to the problems of the loss of reputation that women who were unmarried often faced if they became pregnant. Um, and it was influenced by class differences for sure. So it, it's not that it, it's totally lacking in any of the normalizing effects that Foucault talks about with the panopticon structure, but it is a radically different kind of structure. And it connects to Bentham's later arguments on anonymity and the importance of anonymity in protecting witnesses of government abuse, for example, in trying to disseminate information about those abuses through the press. And that's a very live discussion today. And I, it, what I think is so compelling about it is that it's only by attending to these maybe overlooked aspects of Bentham's sexual politics that we are able to then better appreciate his democratic politics in his later writing. And what exactly his kind of the nuances of his approach to power relations that we maybe don't get if we just know him through the, the Bentham of the Panopticon prison and Foucault's right. works. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's great stuff, uh, Kristen, because I think that, that there's an aspect of that which is then recovering a, a, a liberalism in Bentham um, that gets lost in the social control of Bentham. But uh, more, you know, more it shows the continuity between the past and the present having to do with these issues about being observed and, and the social pressures and and that bear on all of that issue about wanting to be seen but at the same time to also have your privacy and these are issues that we wrestle with constantly and so given that you are mediating between the past and the present you also deal with the rise of certain you know modern technologies mainly social media and how that's changing or impact on on democratic practice one of the things that's fascinating about that is I wonder whether or not when we study the innovation of other technologies in the past, let's say the printing press, you know, what the consequences of the printing press were precisely for these same reasons, or is this social media and the constant attention that it brings, is this a whole new game changer of everything? So where do you stand on all of that kind of discussion? Yeah, I think that, comparing technological changes can be very useful because we can remember, I mean, what I think is so great about using a history of political thought is not to, you don't want to reduce or, or um, elide the major differences, material differences that we have between our societies and societies that these other thinkers were writing in. But at the same time, it helps you confront the fact that some of these questions are enduring and some of the challenges that we're facing have analogous challenges in the past. 
but at the same time, it also does really help you sharpen what is unique about today. So for example, with uh, these thinkers in the past, they are interested, and, th- and this is you know where I concede to some of the criticisms, I guess, but also proponents say this about some of these thinkers that they were pretty, they understood the importance of publicity of the fact that there might be some institutional, uh, both formal and non-formal conditions that help encourage, encourage some level of social conformity, just in terms of appreciating the necessity of a stable political community, right? But at the same time, they always had this strong emphasis on the inviolability of the mind. So when you're writing something down, okay, you might be able to be, if you have strong censorship laws, you might be persecuted for that. And that would be very dangerous, but you could also just not write things down and you could think what you believe and nobody's going to know. And there is this sense of, you know, respect for that, that we always will have that. Um, In fact, actually Bentham has this rather, I I really like it, interesting line on his later writings about how if you have a society where uh, you have restrictions on political organizations and and censorship, those types of more restrictions on speech, um, he was saying that you want to post those laws up in a pub or tavern or whatever. And with just a glance, it turns from eulogy to satire. Mm-hmm. And so th- that is that that sort of freedom that we have in our mind and the idea of where you can find those secret spaces that that's where kind of resistance and pushback can grow. And I think that that's actually more crucial to liberalism than we sometimes, um, both proponents and critics acknowledge. Um, but what is unique about social media is that, and, and there's some there's some challenges with this is that it suggests to us that what we see and how we're observed can have such a big impact on our thoughts. So when you're using social media, you're interacting with it. It's all very tangible. You have a record of what you're doing. There's data being collected about you. You don't necessarily have to be developing or writing out your your treatise for it to have a lot of information about where you're coming from as a person. Yeah. And where what you're interested in, the kind of thoughts that you're developing. And now there's sort of a tension here because these the, the, the thing about the internet, even though we could see it as democratizing, we do have to acknowledge that it's very much our interactions are mostly on uh, a small number of media platform companies, uh, especially, you know, people people talk about that. Um, and the entire internet as a it has is incentivized towards a digital advertising business model and that's why this data is collected so it can both be used to shape what people are exposed to on their news feeds but also the ads that they're shown and one of the big selling points for that these companies rely on is to make the claim to um, companies but also political actors that their money is going to go the furthest on their websites because they have this great data that's going to help them find the people who are going to be most receptive to their messages, who are going to buy their product or vote for their candidate. And at the same time, companies want to deny that they have this kind of persuasive influence, that this data actually makes that much of a difference in terms of people's choices, because they also want to deny all the accusations of radicalization on their platforms, that you have people who are being recommended certain extremist you know, social groups mm-hmm. online or being shown disinformation content that leads to political turmoil, right? So these things can't both be true. Um, You can't say that they're really influential and your ad money is going to go far and we aren't having any major political consequences by virtue of the way our technology is designed. But I think the point is, is that this is a major technological difference from other forms of media that we've had in the past. In addition to the fact that it's just a huge part of our lives, that that desire for social recognition that these thinkers are already thinking about in the early um, time of the development of commercial society are still relevant today, that we're motivated to be seen by each other. Uh, That's why we use these sites. That's why we produce content on these sites, not just consume content and why we kind of interact as spectators, as an audience together online and how central these are to our lives, especially during the pandemic where we can't as easily be together in person. Yeah. I, 
I'm, I was intrigued by this idea that you have about um, what people see or observe about us on our social on our social media because at, while at the same time we are utilizing the platforms for a variety of things, we also are not using it to capture all of us. Mm. But yet we get defined by a particular slice of us. And in some cases, it's the worst slice of us. In other cases, it's the best slice of us. But none of us are just those slices, right? And so how do we come to understand one another when all we understand about one another is what we get as the picture that this platform has produced for us? And so, you know, uh, it's, it's a, uh, I mean, I think we're still having growing pains about learning how to process it. I, and, you know, it's, it's also the case that young, young, the impact of it on young minds might be a lot different than it is on older minds, or maybe not, <laughs> you know, but that's all studying and stuff. But it's a, it's a, at one point we, we mentioned, I mentioned this a little earlier to you, but at one point, you know, the, the studies were trying to show that uh, political participation was declining. This is all pre-COVID because we were already signaling who we were politically on the uh, online platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. So therefore, we didn't need to actually go vote because we already we already went. And so then the kind of rational voter calculation that economists talk about like kicks in and it's raining outside or whatever. Yeah. But I could go online on Facebook and say, you know, I want I'm on team Obama or I'm on team, you know, um, you know, whoever, you know, Bush or whatever. And um, and so as a result, it doesn't, um, you know, uh, uh, translate into a uh, an actual increasing of, of political participation. Mm -hmm. But in the COVID time, obviously, it became a major vehicle to get voter turnout. I mean, we ended up by having a voter turnout, which was unbelievable, you know, for a variety of reasons. But so we don't know what's going on with this platform. I mean, do you have, do you, I mean, do you have any idea in your head about what, how we're going to resolve these kind of tensions or ways in which we're going with that? Well, one thought that I have, I, I, I think that's a very open and big question. But yeah, one, I, I apologize for that. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I just, I just want to acknowledge that I don't, I mean, I'm not going to have like a good concrete answer to it, but, but I think what is striking to me is the only way that we can start figuring that out is if we really open up our lines of inquiry into confronting these challenges and making social media more central to our accounts of politics one or the other, at least our puzzles yeah. that we're studying being related to this. Uh, and, and we are doing that. I mean, people do study, there's a why, and that's why interdisciplinary dialogue is so important because people in all sorts of disciplines are trying to confront these questions. And you have people in um, I think, you know, society and technology studies where they are, are really zeroed in on these discussions. And you also need what is so challenging about this is there's really technical details about these companies. And I think you could only and these technologies. And I think you could only really begin to understand it if you have people willing to collaborate. And I think it's kind of difficult because in academia, we really rely on specialization but a lot of these problems, especially as our technological systems become more complicated, really demand a lot of different kinds of knowledge. And that is why cooperation is so important. So, yeah, my answer is not, you know, what, how we're going to actually resolve this, but more to say that there are important skills and approaches that we're going to need to adopt more of in order to do so, interdisciplinary connections being one of them. I think methodological pluralism is really important and allowing for the fact that you're going to have people who can do ethnographic studies, both on users or on the content moderators who are contracted by companies um, and you know spend hours looking at just absolutely horrible footage, those types of things that we don't actually see that readily, but are really essential to the infrastructure. And the other, the other issue with this is that acknowledging that these are also deeply political questions in the sense of researchers are going to have to figure out how they can study these technologies when they are private companies and the private companies themselves might try to do their best to 
um, you know, they have they have proprietary concerns, but also, of course, they're concerned with PR and things like that. And so I think it would be very good if you saw more uh, cooperation uh, with the companies, but just acknowledging that that's we can never take for granted that uh, powerful entities are going to just open up their doors and let you in yeah. to scrutinize. Yeah, I mean, it's a it, I, you know, during the pandemic, one of the movies I watched was this Tom Hanks movie where he travels around the, the West and reads the news, you know, to tell people. I, it's, I think it's called, you know, I, I like the news of the world or something like that. And he, he this is what he does for a living. He travels around and he goes to a, a tent. You know, people don't have a newspaper in the area. They don't know what's going on anywhere else. The telegraphs are very limited in terms of their spread and whatnot. And now you think about like where we are today, whereas anything going on can be found out in a second, maybe not even the correct interpretation of what went on. And, you know, and all these, and, and we're going to have to learn how to process that because for example, this last 18 months, we intellectuals would have had a very difficult time operating in a world without Zoom, without, you know, access to everything being online, libraries and everything like that. So if it was the old days, we would have had a much more difficult time getting on with our lives. On the other hand, there's consequences that are associated with that, which is that, you know, when I go to, to Amazon, they give me the list of the books because they know what books I've been reading. Right. And, you know, so they, they know that. Um, anyway, so we're going to have to learn about what that means and what it means for our democratic society and when we can turn the switch off and when we can never turn it off and, and whatnot. I, I want to pivot a little bit and ask you a little bit about sociology of your own like career at some level, which is that you're a political theorist working in an environment grounded in economics. So I guess some of the first questions that I have for you, and you, and you were doing that before COVID hit, so we, you, you had the chance to experience the daily interactions with <laughs> economists. Uh, what, was the, what was the biggest surprise that you had in, in moving to a world in which now you're interacting with people that are economists? And do you think it's easier for a political theorist to work in a world of economists than it would be for an economist to work in the world of political theorists. Thank you. Yeah, those are really great, great questions. And that last one's I, that's a really fun one. And also, you know me, I try to be diplomatic. So I'm gonna have to <laughs> think about how to answer that in a non-alienating way. <laughs> but um, and also, you know, so I, I, what I will say, what comes to mind, and it, I guess it's not entirely surprising in the sense of I was really fortunate to be an Adam Smith fellow with Mercatus. So I did get to know you and our colleagues before I ever um, worked as a, a faculty member. So, but, but what was surprising, because I will say being from a political science department uh, in my graduate program, I was very used to um, having to justify myself. I mean, my, my department was great, but you definitely run into people who are really into quantitative work, um, and who basically want to be economists <laughs> in a political science department and to say things like, oh, I don't know why political theory is so fueled anymore. Don't you want to be in a philosophy department or history department instead? That kind of thing. Um, but what was surprising was that I thought, you know, moving into a realm of more economists, that, that would just be more uh, of the challenge. But actually, I find that everyone's much more embracing of methodological pluralism. And in fact, what you were talking about with Gadamer and Lavoie, this idea that there's an importance to the subjective perspective that individuals have when they, when they are the subject of research. Um, even if you're not doing ethnographic research, if you are trying to model or think about society, you have to acknowledge the dimension to which agents involved in a process are bringing their own meaning to that process at the same time. And in fact, so that our, our colleagues do do work that is more ethnographic and really does rely on interviews with people and really is about getting it uh, inside the perspectives of people involved. And that was something I was always attracted to uh, in political science as well. And so what's fascinating is with our programming, 
including the Smith Fellowship, is you get to see all these methodological commonalities that can exist across disciplines, including economics and political science, but also sociology and anthropology. And people are used to the fact that they uh, also want to be in communication with these other forms of, of research methods, too. So it's not that oh, my way is the only way. Uh, it's actually a much more nuanced conversation about what does this puzzle demand of us? And if I answer it using these methods, what will I get versus these other methods? And maybe how can we collaborate on this? Uh, how can our research speak to one another's research? That was definitely my experience as an Adam Smith fellow. And I think that's my experience still uh, with the Mercatus Center. And I think that that's a strength that you don't always find in departments that are let, that are more siloed into their own Subspecializations. Well, that was very typical of you. It's brilliant <laughs> and very kind. Uh, you're you're in a world of a bunch of oddballs, which is one <laughs> of the reasons for that. We we defy the kind of mix of of normal economics. That's why we're we have the program we're in. But so I, I was I was I was hoping you would pick on us a little bit more for our <laughs> our, our hard nosed economics. But um, but I really appreciate that. I do think that that is is correct is that if you take the uh, subjectivism aspect seriously, you recognize that the science is slightly different because we have, it's as if the matter could talk and mm -hmm. you have to pay attention to the matter that's in there that you're talking. And that changes the whole dynamic. So, um, and I appreciate your involvement both as an Adam Smith fellow, but then now as a faculty member, both for our internal programs, the PhD students and the MA programs in economics, but then also our external programs that you're involved in as well. But if you could identify where you think the biggest challenge is in contemporary social scientific and humanity scholarship for interdisciplinary conversation, you just mentioned the siloing aspect, which is a natural tendency. But is there anything inherent that you see in interdisciplinary conversations that presents a block that you wish that a, that you could tell a younger Kristen now to be ready to overcome that block or, or yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And also, you know, not to evade the more fun question that you <laughs> asked about political theorists and economists, because I think. Now, the answer to both of those, to me, is, or at least what I think a lot about, because I'm interested in more normative or pres prescriptive and evaluative theorizing, is that one of the major challenges we have is distinguishing between, you know, fact and value, between is and ought, and between the sort of descriptive accounts, trying to understand, trying to maybe sort out causal mechanisms versus you know, why are we studying this? What is the takeaway in a more evaluative sense of how does this, what kind of vision of the world does this suggest and point towards? And I think that political theorists, political theory, it's not always about that for sure. But I think more so than a lot of other disciplines or, or fields of research, those, those questions are, are relevant and they are respected and they are part of what's in our minds in a way that makes it challenging because you can kind of take for granted that people are interested in talking about that. But I think for some people, those, those topics are the sort of, you don't talk about that, the dinner table topics, right. their religion, their politics. Right. Um, and the issue is that often when we're having interdisciplinary dialogues, I actually find that those are the questions that people are attracted to that allow them to start being able to grapple with a, a common ground, even when they disagree on the values or they disagree on the judgments that they have, they are interested in those big picture questions. And when we have our seminars, that's often, you know, we have the, we have texts that might be bringing, that really elicit those types of questions. And so it might be a place where for some students, some scholars, this is where they can talk about that stuff because they feel like they can't really talk about that at their in, in most of their seminars because they have to be this more rigid distinction right. between a more descriptive versus normative account. Right. And so I think my advice would be, and what I think is a challenge is to learning how to have, be comfortable with those uncomfortable, uncomfortable conversations, with conversations where we are bringing in perspectives from our lives that are beyond our 
the, what's on paper of what we do as scholars, but are, are nevertheless, and I think kind of, I kind of think of Max Weber on some of this stuff that these values, they, they, they influence what questions we decide to ask. Yeah. And so being reflective on what questions are we asking and what do those say about us? Um, are there questions that we are missing? Are there texts that we could bring in to get at those questions in a, in a, a different uh, way that might also speak to people who are feeling left out of a conversation? Those are, I think, like the, the long-term challenges of any scholar who is dealing with, you know, pedagogical questions as well. Yeah, I think that that's very insightful, actually, because even our scholarship is actually a, a, a continuous engagement of a pedagogy, right? We're just having a conversation. And the conversations are two-way streets, and we're always having these different conversations, and they could be with with thinkers and books in the past, or they could be with someone sitting right next to you. But basically, at the end of the day, as social scientists and, and, and practitioners of the humanities, we're trying to understand the human condition. And those are fascinating conversations, but also difficult ones uh, to have. And, and hopefully scholarship is an uh, avenue in which you can ask and probe at some of the most difficult questions that are uncomfortable that you have around uh, the dinner table, as you said, so as a really insightful. Um, I'm very mindful of your time. I've been eating up your time. So I, I want to ask you a final question, which is a bonus question, which has to do with, you know, tell us a little bit about your current projects, what you're working on, and in particular, what you get most excited about, like just in terms of ideas, you might not even be writing on them right now, but you've read something and or you've heard something and you just get really pumped up about it. Yeah, I mean, thank you. That is a great question. And I think everybody appreciates being able to talk about what they're excited about. Um, you know, I, it's so, it's such a, a roller coaster to work on a long term project. So turning the dissertation into a book. What's interesting is that things can happen in, uh, in society, like in our reality, um, that kind of bring you back to things that you were thinking about before that you maybe were like, oh, I don't think this is really super relevant right now, or this isn't the direction I need to go in. So I, my project is informed by surveillance, and it's also informed by spectatorship. And I'm really interested in the fact that, I guess what I, I've been really excited about is that for a long time in recent years, we've been thinking about our politics in terms of this, or, or there's a discourse around a, this sort of theatrical nature of politics of having a president who was a reality TV star and a socialite and had that kind of me big media presence for so long. Uh, and I, there's a tendency to look at a lot of that as maybe dangerous to kind of connect it to more liberal forms of politics. Yeah. And that was always something I was interested in from the beginning. But I kind of I kind of did fade away in a sense of the text I was working with actually really spoke to surveillance more than I thought they would, uh, for example. But what I'm interested in now is to try to revisit, and with Bentham, you know, somebody who I didn't really realize would have these insights that I would find, you know, relevant and I would be sympathetic to to some degree. Um, also, as somebody who's really well known for just being very pro pleasure, right. <laughs> um, and so I'm trying to find more inspiration to be optimistic about our politics in terms of not condemning pleasure so much, in the sense of like when politics is interesting when a politician does something that might seem theatrical on some level is it always a bad thing is it always illiberal is it always in a disservice or to some extent do we need to have a certain amount of um i wouldn't want to say entertainment but a certain amount of catharsis in our politics yeah. a certain amount of sympathetic connection in our politics is it actually going to be essential to protecting uh, values like justice, equality, and freedom, right, and solidarity, um, you know, trying to be, like I said, just trying to be more optimistic of how can things that we are fearful of actually be something that we can't deny ourselves, but have to kind of understand on what terms can this be conducive to the kind of democratic politics that we want to see. So, I mean, charisma has two sides to it. 
Yeah. So yeah. Charismatic, like a Weberian charismatic. Yeah. So, and and yeah. that was actually my original, I don't even know if you know this. I don't know if we talked about this, but I was a very beginning of my graduate programming. I was very interested in Weber and charisma. And I was thinking of charisma as on some level an essential part of modern, modern politics with good and bad consequences, right? And then I actually got a little bit scared off from that. So I guess I'm kind of returning to some of that, those, awesome. those possibilities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, I, it's, it is amazing to me. I just have a piece coming out on Weber in the Journal of Contextual Economics. And, and it is amazing to me how when you read Weber at the turn of the century, it's now a whole century plus later, and we're still dealing and grappling with observations that he made. And I think that's also true when you read Adam Smith, that mm -hmm. we're still, you know, it, it, there's a lot of context that changes, no doubt, but there's also a lot of thread of our commonness with us throughout. Um, and that that is, I think, you know, one of the things that is so fascinating about the kind of project that we're all engaged in in this. So. Thank you so much, Pete. It was a, a wonderful conversation. I always love talking to you. And I, I, I really learned so much and thought so much in just this short amount of time. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.